Looking tonight at uh, Psalm 107, especially verses 4 down through 22, our message entitled, Mighty Deliverance for Deepest Misery. You can recognize the pattern in this very interesting psalm. It's a post-exilic psalm, as we said last time. And uh, it it kind of feels as you're reading through it that you're experiencing uh, deja vu all over again. It's got this pattern of distress and crying out and the Lord's answering and, and the call then to be thankful uh, for specific things. So that's what we're getting into here tonight and taking up three of these uh, vignettes. I remember in uh, college I had, a really, I had two really excellent Bible teachers. Um, and one of them made the remark one time, what a, what a blessing it is to study in the scriptures the topic of the fact that God is able. Just that little word, able. So many wonderful, blessed promises. 2 Corinthians 9.8 is one of my favorites where it says, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. There are five alls in that. God is able And, of course, we think of the great prayer at the end of Ephesians chapter 3. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. And then Hebrews chapter 7. Therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. It seems to me that this is the point of these four vignettes in Psalm 107. In other words, we didn't read the end of this, of this psalm, but at the end of the psalm, it speaks about the ability of the Lord to do all things. It concludes with these words of how God is able um, to, um, to turn a paradise into a waste place, into a desert. And likewise, he's able to take that waste place, that wilderness, and turn it back into a paradise. God is able, unlike the local and the false gods made with men's hands, as we are studying in Psalm 115, to do all of his holy will, all of his pleasure. God rules over the good and the bad. He rules over hunger and thirst. He rules over the wilderness and the city, over darkness and light, over the prisoner and the prince, over sadness and gladness, over the rebellious and their repentance. This great variety that you see in these four vignettes flow from the reality that God is in control over all of the the, the melees of man's fall and the mayhem that comes, as well as his recovery. As we said a moment ago, all of these four follow the same pattern. Here are these various human predicaments. Here are the lost and the hungry. Here are prisoners in the dark shadow of death. Here is the foolish rebel who has come to the end of his rope. And then in each of these vignettes, they each cry out of their depths. They cry to the Lord in their trouble. And God then answers them according to their need and reverses their condition, delivering them from their distress and bringing them into a safety. 
And then lastly, a call is given, repeated, as we saw last week, the praise-punctuated life. A call to give thanks for the specific nature of the Lord's love to them. Oh, praise him, thank him for his loving kindness and that love being shown in these specific ways in answer to their petitions, to their crying out loudly to the Lord for help. Oh, thank him for his love in satisfying the hungry or breaking the bars of iron or brass and for healing them to the point of praising the Lord. We take note here then of the diversity of the needs of men. They are indeed legion. We all don't have the same problems, but we all have problems. Augustine said that the, uh, that the, the sword of sin has cut down entirely the whole forest or woods of mankind. But that doesn't mean that all the trees fall the same way. We each have fallen in various manners and ways, and that includes our makeup and our besetting sins and and how um, we are drawn away and so forth, but it also touches upon the miseries of our life. You don't face the trials that I do. I don't face the trials that you do. And that is illustrated in these portraits as the psalmist takes us through uh, to consider. And yet, as we talk about the diversity, how fully does God care for all of these conditions. How fully, for instance, does God feed the world and provide a place for them in inhabited cities? That's the first vignette in 4 through 9. But there is still hunger and there is displacement. And there is no reason given for why there is this displacement and hunger in this particular picture. Then moving on to the next paragraph, there is human responsibility involved in those who find themselves in prison, in darkness, and in the shadow of death. A God had been turned away from them in some way. They did not heed his word or, or, or his counsel. Actually, his counsel was spurned, it says here. The counsel of the Most High, which should have been given the first place, is given the last. And so there is uh, rebuke and there is challenge. Whenever we go against God's ways, we can anticipate trouble in our lives. God had been turned away from, and God himself is the agent then that lays them low. Notice the language there in verse 12. He humbled their heart with labor. They stumbled, and there was none to help. And then in 17 through 22, this seems to be a deeper rebellion still, and being brought, men being brought to the end of their ropes for their sins. Fools. They have the character of the fool. And so we see here the depths from which Men may cry, depths of sin, depths of misery for sin, depths of the sorrows that come from miseries. That's how, um, that's how Knight described Psalm 130, when it says, Out of the depths I cry unto you, O Lord. What kind of depths? The depths of our sins, the depths of the misery that comes from our sins, and the depths of the sorrows that visit these miseries and come with the sad situation in which we find ourselves. But take note here that the Lord is Lord over all of this. The Lord is the Lord over the wanderer. He is the Lord over the spiritual and moral vagabond. Those who are paying for their transgressions in jails or prisons... I mean, when we think of prisons, we think of our, our state, our situation, and those aren't good. 
I can't imagine what a prison would have been like back in the ancient world without the influence of Christianity upon them. But these are those who have wrecked themselves, even to the point where their appetite is gone. The point here to be made is that God has you in his hand no matter how far you have wandered or gone astray from him. This passage, uh, in a kind of turnaround way, reminds us that the Lord, we are never so far away from the Lord on this side of eternity that he cannot reach us and save us. God is always there watching the prodigal as they go off into their far country and as they exercise their wayfaring ways, the Lord has his eyes upon all mankind. We dare not say that a person is too far gone, according to this psalm. He is the God who sees, and he is the God who is able to help the most lost and most destitute. And yet how men try their own remedies to fix their condition. They still stick to their own ways instead, which oftentimes are the reason why they are in a mess. And they don't cry out to the Lord. So notice, secondly, then, the way that they are brought to themselves so as to cry out, as did the prodigal in Luke 15. One feels their desperation of life in verse 5. They were hungry and thirsty. Their soul fainted within them. What picturesque language this is. Here they are wandering and they're starving and they don't know where their next meal is coming from. They're They're at the end of their proverbial rope. And so similarly in verse 17, notice that language. Fools, because of their rebellious way and because of their iniquities, were afflicted. The sinner is afflicted to the point of rejecting then even food and drink. It's a kind of a contrast to the one who desperately needs food and drink to this person who's so far gone. I don't even care about food and drink. And so that's an interesting um, uh, uh, juxtaposition of the two. Their soul abhorred all kinds of food, and they drew near to the gates of death, desperate indeed. The sinner here is afflicted. How many of us know people who have been brought to the end of that proverbial rope? And we're going to have to say, honestly, that it's a good thing when you finally hit rock bottom, if you are not turning to the Lord. I have a very good friend who got into really great and deep financial problems. He he owed a staggering amount of money to the point where the Lord brought him to his knees. He actually stopped his car, turned it off, got out of the car, in his suit, got out in the weeds, and bowed his knee and pleaded to God to help him in his situation. And thank God he answered. That's how our God works. Um, we can't lead our own lives. We only make a mess of our own life. And then verse 12 tells us that in all instances where sinners repent, we notice here this one element that's brought out in these first three vignettes. We're going to get to the fourth vignette. I'm going to save the, the sailors in the sea for next time. I want to leave them alone. But notice here in verse 12, um, it is because the Lord humbles people that they cry out and, and bring, they're brought to the place where none other could help Therefore, he humbled their heart with labor. They stumbled, and there was none to help. This is God's good work in a sinner's life to bring the, the, um, the effects of their sins upon them 
so that they would humble themselves. God works that humility. And unless the Lord gives that humility, we remain in our stubbornness, our rebellion, our, our pride. How dare we turn to remedies that will not rescue us when the Lord has so stooped to help those who call on him? There is, again, a great, great connection here on the one hand of the greatness of God in verse 11, spurning the counsel of the Most High. What can be compared to the Word of God? Um, and yet this Most High God has given us this counsel. He has stooped and condescended. He has reached down to redeem those who cry out to him. Now this brings us then uh, to this next point. The Lord answers their needs exactly as they are in need. Notice the repetition. He delivered. He delivered. He delivered. But the content is always fitted for their needs. If God brought a deliverance that wasn't fitted to them, it would not be a deliverance. But God knows our needs and provides exactly our needs in our life. To the wandering, lost, and hungry in the wilderness, they receive a city with food and drink available to them. To the prisoners in darkness, the Lord breaks their bonds and the bars with their gates of bronze. And to the rebellious, he brings them up and out of their distressful condition, sending his word to them, a very touching language here. He sends his word and heals them. What a beautiful touch that is. God does not spurn them. God does not reprove them or keep them waiting, stewing, as it were, as they're crying out to him in great need. He shows perfect mercy and kindness, abounding in love and grace to them. And so we behold here as well, not only the variety of the needs, all of them then crying out to the Lord, and then the variety of his answers. The wanderers are retrieved. The hungry are relieved. The prisoners are released. The sick are restored, and the foolish are recalled from their folly. And we will eventually see the sailors rescued in the next message. This tells us that he alone, the Lord, is the redeemer of mankind. And we see this so powerfully, don't we, in the life of our Savior, in his humiliation. When Jesus walked the face of this earth and went about as the book of, of, of the Acts says, doing good. All were welcome to him. All the desperate, all the needy, all the broken. And none of them were turned away. The Lord never seriously or fully said, no, I'm not even going to help you. Even though he did something with that Syrophoenician woman that was very interesting. Which just demonstra demonstrated her faith. And he uh, rescued her as well. All are welcomed, none are turned away. All of them were remedied. We don't read of any single person being brought to Jesus and Jesus said, I can't heal you. And then he found no case too hard and there is no case too hard for the Lord. Even death is no match for the king. What a night and day difference then his salvation brings in each of these vignettes. Notice that these are called wonders, repeated time and again. Oh, that they would give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness. There's his motivation. And for his wonders, these wonderful acts to the sons of men. These wonders 
our God does every single day. There is not a day that goes by that our wonderful God does not act wonderfully to the needs of this fallen planet. Wonders to the sons of men. Now stop here for a second and consider what do all of these deliverances out of this distress from the love of God in this wonderful way, what does that tell you about the Lord? What does that tell you about his character? In verse 9, it says, For he has satisfied the thirsty soul, and the hungry soul he has filled with what is good. God's goodness is certainly displayed in each of these paragraphs. God is good to those who don't deserve his goodness. God is overflowing with good. We dare not ever think that somehow God is harsh. God's goodness comes from his very character. We see it in his creation, in his providence, in his redemption, and in the aim of all of his works in the consummation. In verse 16, we learn something else about God. For he has shattered gates of bronze and cut bars of iron asunder. I can't even imagine what kind of gates or or bars this is speaking of, but it takes no little bit of power to be able to do that. God is able and omnipotent to do all of his pleasure pleasure to break uh, prison bars of bronze and iron. There's nothing too hard for the Lord. There's nothing impossible to him. And so God is all-powerful as well as good. He's able to do all the good that he desires to do. And then in verse 20... That healing word comes out. He sent his word and healed them. We could talk about his power there as well. He just has to speak and it is done. Um, But here he is restoring the fool. He takes the fool and makes him whole again. I'm not sure how much this is speaking about healing physically. As much as healing their mind. And bringing them out of their folly. And what's the opposite of folly? To wisdom. And our God is a God of wisdom, a God of knowledge and of understanding, a God of truth. And so we see the wisdom of God on display here in knowing how to bring those who are in the darkness of foolishness and sin and to bring them into the glory of his wisdom. And then in verse 22, God is worthy of all worship. Notice here the language of these fools When he says in verse 22, let them also offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his works with joyful singing. This breaks the pattern. With the other two vignettes, after the call to thanksgiving because of the wonders of God to the sons of men, it speaks about what God did for them. In verse 9, satisfied thirst and hunger. In verse 16, broke the gates of bronze and and cut the bars of iron. But it doesn't say in verse 22 what he did to them that's been mentioned already, having sent his word and healed them and delivered them from their pits, their destruction. This is a call for them to come and to offer sacrifice. I think that that's significant. Why this change in this verse? It seems to speak about the fact that God indeed has made a way for sinners to come unto him, for sinners to be welcomed for sinners to have fellowship with God where they could not before. The angels would put it this way. Here are glad tidings of great joy to all of the earth. And so as we take note, lastly, of the responses to the varied needs and the excellent provisions of our wonderful God, um, the, the response in each of these instances is the same. 
whether you're in A, B, C, or next week D, the response is to be thankful for God's loving kindness to you. Be thankful for God's love. I find this exciting. No matter who you are as a believer, what you've been saved from, the response is the same. Though we have different backgrounds, different sins, different failures, all throughout mankind, the Lord's various ways of restoring them all is, on the one hand, motivated by the same impulse in the Lord and comes to bring the same response in us. Why did God uh, help you? Because he loved you. Why did God help you? Because he loved you. Why did God help me? Because he loved me. And the response then is the same. It's not like, well, because God loved you and helped you in this way, your response should be this, and over here it should be different. It's the exact same thing as we're all brought together in fellowship to the same covenant-keeping Redeemer. So, he shows mercy in this way. Um, I find that just awesome. Uh, God's loving kindness moves him, and thankfulness to him is the only appropriate reply. This tells us there are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. There are no stepchildren in the family of the Lord. I especially love the fact that the lowest and the meanest of these three, which I think is the third vignette, the fools who had rebelled, they are the ones who are uniquely, specially encouraged to approach the Lord himself with a sacrifice of thanksgiving and joyful singing. He doesn't say to the others, now you can approach me, but these other fools, you know, keep them at a distance. They are especially welcomed, warmly so, into the presence of God to give thanks. Those who are forgiven much, said the Lord, love much. And those who love much, serve much. What a word to those who have crossed lines for which they have trouble accepting God's forgiveness. There are those who have dug their holes so deep they feel like the Lord can't forgive them, or even if they are forgiven, they just feel always inadequate to be a part of the church. This passage speaks to that. It's a word to those who are ashamed to lift their face to heaven and yet are loved and welcomed still. What a word to those who are in a place uh, to help those who are struggling Uh, help their struggling neighbor to come to grips with the grace of God. What a great passage this is if we see somebody struggling with their their acceptance with the Lord and acceptance in the body of Christ. No wonder the the, uh, Virginian Presbyterian W.S. Plumer called this psalm, this is a wine press that bursts out with fatness. And we need to be drinking deep of these principles that are here on the very surface of them. The greater the grace and deliverance, the love and timely kindness shown to us, the greater the obligation to live thank-filled lives, to praise and to glorify God, and not to praise second causes, to thank the Lord. You have an obligation to render to the Lord the worship that is his due, Let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness, for his wonders to the sons of men. We are to thank him. We are to thank him fully. We're to thank him heartily from the depths of our being.
We're to thank him continually. The thanks of the Lord is always to be in our lips. We are even to thank him extravagantly. I love what somebody said about the the woman who came during the week before Jesus was going to the cross and poured that really expensive perfume, that whatever cologne upon his body. And not only Judas, who was greedy for money, but all the disciples looked at that and said, oh, what a waste. What a waste. And yet he said, leave her alone. He saw the great love that was involved in that sacrifice. He knew that this was a preparation for his burial. And he praised her for that act, for that extravagant act, even as she was being criticized by the disciples at that point. And somebody asked the question at this juncture and said, Has, have you ever been accused of extravagance in thankfulness and in expressing your wonder and awe at what the Lord has done for you. I think we need more of that. Um, Maybe the world might take greater notice of what's going on in the ways of his kingdom, our Savior's kingdom, if we had that in us. Let's thank the Lord together. Father, do give us hearts filled with gratitude. We know, Lord, that we need to pray regularly for hearts saturated in your grace and in your love to know your truths of how great you are. One of the most important prayers that we ever ask of you is, Lord, give us tender hearts. Give us hearts indeed that, that thank you fully. Lord, save us from divided hearts. Unite our hearts to fear your name. Help our hearts, Lord, to, to, to love you deeply, to praise you deeply from the depths of our being. Lord, save us from shallow worship. Help us, Lord, to seek the deep things of God and to enjoy fellowship with you there. Help our thanksgiving to be continual. Help us to be reminded, Lord, that while we love your house and we love corporate worship as we gather together as your saints, we are to worship you all the day long. We are to offer living sacrifices in our bodies and in our minds unto you. And so, Lord, help there to be no long stretches in our lives where we are cold to you and acting like the fool and uh, turning our back upon you and spurning your counsel. And Lord, we pray for extravagant thanksgiving and worship. Lord, you are a God who does wonders. Lord, may we pay you back, although that can never be paid truly, but help us to respond as we should upon your gifts. As one of the Puritans put it, that praise is the rent that we owe upon the wonders of your goodness in our lives. So our great God, our good God, our omnipotent God, our wise God, the God who cares for the needy and able to save those who are are lost so deeply, we bless you and thank you for your wonderful name and who our Savior Jesus is. Oh, what a gift we have in him. Lord, help us to live before you, to live before the cross as your pilgrim people. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.